Hi, it's Dr. Julie from my CBT podcast. I'm a doctor of psychology and a licensed clinical social worker specializing in cognitive behavioral therapy. I'm here to help you bring you the power of CBT into your own life. So this is a really special podcast for me, you guys, and it's all because of you and listening to me over the years, but this is my 100th episode, and I got a phenomenal surprise for you because I have the honor to have Dr. Dennis Greenberger, the co-author of Mind Over Mood that I refer to you guys all the time, that he agreed to let me interview him today just talking more about CBT and we'll talk about Mind Over Mood book and just get his phenomenal insight and his years of wisdom working with everyone that he's worked with and you know how he got into CBT and his experience and his thoughts. So thanks again, Dennis, for being here with me. Oh, it's my pleasure, Julie. Thanks for having me. So can you first kind of share with the audience like your background and how long you've been doing CBT and... Sure. So I am a psychologist and I've been doing CBT since uh, probably the mid-1980s or so. And... Um, kind of more formally since probably the earlier mid-1990s in more of a traditional higher fidelity kind of way. And can you tell me your training? Like, how did you get into it? How did you decide to do CBT? Sure. Well, the the longer story, I guess, <laughs> is that I have always been very practical just by nature. And uh, so I remember sitting around, when I was in college, sitting around the family dinner table and there, my family asking me about, you know, what I was learning. And... I realized that a lot of the things that I was explaining were really pretty incomprehensible uh, to my family. So, but the thing that was not as incomprehensible was really explaining what cognitive behavior therapy was and how it worked. And my family really was very practical in many ways. And, and I find that part of my attraction to CBT was that it really was a very practical kind of treatment that was easy to explain, easy to understand. Uh, and more importantly for me, it was it was in the process when I was younger of just being proven. It was just coming out of the okay. psychological laboratories, just coming out of the um, people that were doing the original research. Um, Aaron Beck or Albert Ellis were producing some very impressive results, which further attracted me to CBT. And then the third thing I think that really... Um, drew me closer to CBT was that um, some of my early therapy experiences were where treatment was done in a very time-limited kind of way. Yeah. So the question was, how can we have the most impact in these limited amounts of time? So I was working in an inpatient psychiatric hospital where people came in the midst of a crisis and they may have been there for two weeks or three weeks or three days. Yeah. And so how can we have the most impact in that time? Or I was working um, at a major HMO for an internship where we were limited to 12 mm. sessions a year. <laughs> so how do we make the most impact with those kinds of limitations? And so it further drew me to uh, treatments that could work in that short period of time. Okay. And you, you worked with um, Dr. Aaron Beck, didn't you? Or did, did you do training with him? Or Yeah, so I, um, I think back in the... Uh, late 1980s initially and then into the 1990s I had the opportunity to train uh, at the Center for Cognitive Therapy uh, initially um, at the University of Pennsylvania and then later at the Beck Institute and so I worked w initially with Aaron Beck and then with Judy Beck as well uh, Aaron Beck was really a mentor of mine and Judy was a supervisor 
Um, and so um, he then later became involved in, as a consultant to an inpatient CBT program that I was running, oh. a local CBT program over here in a psychiatric hospital in uh, Orange County, where we trained the staff, all the nurses, and all the occupational therapists, and the recreational therapists, and the individual therapists, to really come from a similar, similar theoretical model. And so uh, Dr. Beck was a consultant uh, for me and for the program for wow. probably a year, a year and a half. And it's really where the second phase of Mind Over Mood was written as well. We got Christine Podesky as a, as, a, as a consultant to the program as well. And we were looking to develop materials that could be utilized in the program. Okay. So is, that was one of my other questions is how did you or why did you decide that that was something that was needed, the Mind Over Mood Oh, book? that's a good question. <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. So and initially I was... Um, I was doing the therapy individually in the office, and then I became involved in working at a local hospital. Uh, it was St. Joseph's Hospital in Orange, and I was running two groups on an outpatient basis. And on Monday nights it was an anxiety group, and on <laughs> Tuesday nights it was a depression group. And I was putting together material uh, from a lot of different sources. How am I going to run this? 10-week or 12-week or 15-week group, uh, whatever it was at the time, how do I uh, put together a psychoeducational and a therapeutic intervention kind of group in a structured kind of way? Mm -hmm. And as I looked around for material, I realized there was none. There was nobody that had really put together a program in that kind of way where in a structured, stepwise fashion, you could teach and learn CBT skills. So I started putting this together in three ring binders at the time, <laughs> week one through week 15, or 12 or 15 or 18. We did it in all kinds of different time frames. And that was really, and some of the material I wrote myself, and that was really the very beginning of creating this structured program that would al stru structure the sessions to some degree, but also structure the in-between homework assignments yes. that people would be doing from week one to week two or week seven to week eight as they build these skills in a stepwise fashion. And then I took the same material and began utilizing it in the psychiatric hospital because most of the people that were psychiatrically hospitalized at that time were uh, being hospitalized for significant depression or suicide attempts yes. and were there for a limited period of time, usually a, a, a length of stay of about 10 to 15 days or so. So we were trying to build the similar kinds of skills um, in that period of time as well. So the book, those were the, really the origins of the book. The, the third reason um, of writing the book was to try to maintain fidelity to the CBT model for the therapist. So it could be used as a self-help book, it could be used to guide therapy as an adjunct to therapy, to structure therapy. But the third reason was we wanted to maintain therapist fidelity to the CBT model because what, we, what Dr. Beck found in the uh, outcome studies that he was doing was that the higher the fidelity to the model, meaning the more the therapist adhered to the CBT model that he had created, the better the outcomes. 
Okay. But there was often drift from the model for some reason or another. And so we put together Mind Over Mood to allow therapists and patients to stay on track and maintain fidelity to the model that we knew produced the best outcomes. Okay. And and that, so that's how you met Dr. Podesky was you guys were in the program together, you were mm. saying? No, she wasn't in the program. I think I... Once I was in the program, I Dr. Beck introduced us. Oh, okay. And knew that we lived close to one another. Yeah. We're both in Orange County. And so, yeah, it might be a good idea for you guys to okay. meet one another. <laughs> and um, and for our listeners that don't know, Dr. Beck, would you, is he considered father of CBT? Yes. Yes, yeah. right? Considered the father of CBT. He's really a landmark figure in psychiatry and in mental health. And he passed away in the last two years. But um, I think he was 100, wasn't he? He was 100 years old, right? <laughs> and one of only two psychiatrists who's ever been nominated for the Nobel Prize in medicine. Wow, so, I did not know yeah, that. Yeah, very huge figure in the history of psychiatry and really ushered in what they called the cognitive revolution, which was, which is taken for granted now the importance of thoughts in our reactions to yes. life events that happen to us. But um, at the time that he introduced that idea, it was novel and revolutionary. And the field was really dominated by psychoanalysis and psychodynamic therapy. And this was really a radical departure from the way that people thought about psychological problems at the time. So um, the, the other piece of the equation that made him so important was that he really was one of the first to really empirically validate the treatments. So psychotherapy had never been subjected to the kind of rigorous outcome studies that he was doing and could prove in a scientific way that this was working. And to really modify the treatment based on what he found was working and what wasn't working. Yes, yeah. And I know my clients love when I say, you know, there's all this research right back in, because I Mm -hmm. have found over the years that clients are getting much more educated on what kind of therapy they want. Right. Right. And I've had people say, oh, I went to someone that said they specialized in CBT, but they did a lot of other things and they didn't really specialize and I want to come see you because I know that's a specialty that you have. So do you find that too, that people are getting more educated about therapy? Yeah. I think it's one of the great things about the internet, Mm -hmm. uh, number one, and there's a decreasing stigma to mental health problems, number two. But it's very easy if somebody is depressed or anxious or has panic attacks or obsessive compulsive disorder, very easy to go to the internet and get a lot of good information through research that you do. And once people begin to do the research, they will realize that there are a few empirically validated treatments and they almost all fall under the umbrella of CBT in one form or another. And once people realize Um, what the research says, they can be more informed consumers. And so when they make the phone call to a therapist, they can learn to ask the right questions. Right, right, yeah. About what treatment that therapist may be providing, what their training and background is, and make a more informed decision about uh, what door to walk through. Yeah. I've told people many times on my podcast and just, you know, my clients, how grateful I was that I fell into CBT with you. So to mm. remind you guys, I uh, met Dr. Greenberg at UCI, and he was running a CBT group where he trained the psychiatry residents, and I got hired there as a therapist, and I was told I had to take the group over. And I really didn't have, I was just a general therapist. 
And um, at first, you know, I laughed because when I first was learning CBT, I'm like, this is a little anal. You know, we got <laughs> situation, mm-hmm. your moods, your thoughts. But it was really life-changing for me in my career that I feel so much more confident as a therapist that I have tools to offer. Right. You know, I yeah. remember back in the day at UCI, too, a woman came in and she was having a panic attack in my office. And I, I really did not know how to help her. It was a horrible feeling as a therapist. And that was before I met you and yeah. was doing the group. And I remember thinking, I need to learn more tools because yeah. I wasn't really taught that in right. graduate school. Right, exactly. You know? Right. So yeah. when we met, um, I would sit in the groups and Dr. Greenberg was running them. And I always share one funny story. I don't know if you're going to remember this because this was, I know it was 25 years ago because I was pregnant with my daughter. Mm-hmm. I remember, that's how I remember how long mm-hmm. we met. And uh, we were doing the group, and there was a guy in group with OCD. Mm-hmm. And in the middle of the group, you took him out, mm-hmm. and you took him down to the bathroom, mm-hmm. and you didn't let him wash his hands, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then you made him wipe the bottom of his shoe right. and come back into group. Do you remember I, that? I think I do remember. <laughs> <laughs> and he sits down, and the whole group is like, oh, my yes. God, we felt so bad for him. And I remember right. sitting there going, oh, this guy's just going to freak out. He's going to yeah. freak out. And you just continued with group. Right. And like 20 minutes later, you checked in, and you're like, yeah. how are you doing? He's like, I'm okay. I'm doing right. all right. Yes. And I was like, whoa. Right. Like, this is powerful stuff. Right. Yes. Yeah. And, and so it is, just to uh, clarify. <laughs> right. It's really exposure therapy is one of the most powerful treatments for OCD and one of the most powerful treatments for panic disorder and for most of the anxiety disorders. And so the question is, how do we modify exposure therapy for these different disorders? And although it sounds unusual... The situation you just <laughs> described, it really isn't in that kind of treatment. And so we're exposing to the situations or things or ideas that are most frightening to people. Uh, and it's usually, it has to be done in the context of a good, solid, warm, um, therapeutic relationship, yes, yes. number one. If it's built on that then you can do those kinds of interventions. So I just want to clarify that it wasn't yeah. the first session <laughs> no. uh, with this person, and I'm sure it was at, in, the, in the context of a good relationship. But the idea is, is that we want, with exposure therapy, we want to show people that they can tolerate their worst fear, and the anxiety is not going to overwhelm them, nothing horrible or catastrophic is going to happen with the exposure and that they're far more capable um, than they may seem. And that the cognitive piece of it um, will follow, the cognitive change of understanding all of that will follow the exposure and the gut level of exp- uh, gut level experience as opposed to changing the cognition first and then doing the exposure. Yes. But I'll also say with the, there's a larger context to ex- the exposure, and that's teaching people some of the more anxiety management strategies to learn how to reduce their anxiety, to learn how to tolerate their anxiety, to learn something like, say, progressive muscle relaxation or mm-hmm. deep breathing or mental imagery so they can reduce anxiety. But the exposure piece of it is to show and teach and have people understand that they can tolerate more anxiety. Yes. So if you think of anxiety on a continuum, people can increase it towards the right side of the continuum or they can decrease it towards the left side of the continuum. Yes. So the exposure that you described, I'm sure, was 
far towards the right side of the yes. continuum. <laughs> and yeah. he did trust you, and we, it was yeah. not our first group. Right. But I remember just as an early therapist, I was like, whoa. Like, yeah, it's, you it's know, very powerful. It is very powerful. Yes. Yeah. I do remember that Do person. you remember? <laughs> yeah, I do. I, <laughs> that was a long time ago. Yeah. And it's, so for all the things you're sharing is why you believe, and we know, why CBT is so effective for people. Right. It, CBT is effective um, because it has the ability to create sustainable um, changes in the way we think and the way we behave and the way we respond to situations in our life. And so the th- kinds of things that bring people into therapy... Um, maybe triggers that they have this habitual way of responding to, habitual ways of thinking or habitual ways of behaving, and CBT has the ability to identify what those thinking and behavioral patterns or habits are and evaluating them and making changes to the way we respond. And it can make lifelong changes in people's lives. And it can happen quick compared to other therapies, right? Absolutely. Yeah. It's generally thought of as a briefer kind of therapy. Depends on the severity of the problem and the nature of the problem. Some people and some uh, types of problems are uh, respond more rapidly, and others take a longer period of time to chip away at. But in general, it's much briefer than other kinds of therapy. Yeah. I like it, too, because it's so interactive. I mean, I think most clients say to me, like, how long is it going to take? And I say, that's really up to you. Mm-hmm. Right, like the more you work at it, the right. quicker you're going to get better. Right, right, and doing the homework and yes. being accountable Absolutely. and all of that makes such a huge difference. And, yeah, yeah. And we were talking before the podcast started. For many people, really self-help kinds of interventions are powerful enough. Yes. Okay, they can take it, they can read about it, they can learn it, and they can figure out what they need to be doing differently. Um, Again, depending on the severity of the problem and the nature of the problem, other people need a little bit of guidance with it yes. uh, from a therapist, and other people may need more significant kinds of guidance. But, um, yeah, people can um, benefit at any one of those different levels. Yeah, which is great. People want to start feeling better quicker, right? right? Especially because they've been suffering right. so long. Right, and you're right. The, it, the rapidness with which people get better depends a lot on how much effort they put in mm-hmm. in between sessions and how much how much time they're willing to put in. The more time they put in, the faster they generally wind up getting better. Yeah. But most of the early studies that Aaron Beck had done with, with um, depression and anxiety, they were working in a 16 to 24 session model. Yeah. And Which most is, of the change occurred in the first eight sessions or so. Interesting. 80, 80, 80% of the change occurred in the early sessions. Ah, yeah. That's good to know. Yeah. That is good to know. Um, do you think that there's any other potentials of CBT that we haven't addressed yet? I mean, things it's always growing, but are there things that well, you can share with us? I think recently for me, one of the things things that's of interest is um, along the lines of what you said initially was that your initial impression was that it was pretty structured or pretty anal or pretty, um, yeah, pretty structured initially. So what I'm, one of the things that I'm interested in is this fidelity issue and also adaptation. Okay. So how do people maintain fidelity in treatment? How does a therapist maintain fidelity? And how does a therapist think through adapting the therapy to respond to 
a person's need? How do we customize the treatment for the person rather than having the person fit into the therapy? Okay. So it's, it's interesting to me, number one, how that's done, and number two, how therapists think that through. So, yes. Um, number one. The second thing that I think um, one of the more one of the ways that I've been thinking about CBT for a number of years is um, how do we incorporate newer findings into the CBT model? So I think that uh, Dr. Beck has created a very durable model of understanding and conceptualizing um, people's difficulties. And so whether that's what we call a cross-sectional model, which is this, uh, uh, take any situation and we can pull it apart or we can dissect it uh-huh. uh, in turn situation moods and automatic thoughts and physiologic responses so we can do a, a freeze frame a moment uh-huh. and we can dissect that experiential moment into these four components so situation who what when and where moods one word automatic thoughts the words or images that go through your head right when you're feeling most emotional, and then any physiologic response. Um, Or we can do a longer-term kind of conceptualization. What childhood experiences, Mm -hmm. relevant childhood experiences did you have? What kind of beliefs developed out of that? How did you wind up coping with that? Uh, What kind of secondary assumptions or conditional assumptions did you have? Um, regard in, that helped you cope with that better and how does that manifest in any uh, given situation mm-hmm. but what I think has happened in the last 20 years is that we've learned newer versions of CBT like dialectical behavior therapy or yes. acceptance and commitment therapy or even back to pure behavior therapy how do we incorporate all that we know that works mm. and make it work for the individual person in front of us so there's a lot of very good strategies that we have that we know work that um, address the underlying cognitive or behavioral processes that are taking place at any given moment, and how do we customize that from all these powerful strategies that we have into a cohesive treatment plan and a cohesive way of understanding the particular person that we're talking to? Yeah, that'd be powerful. Yeah, very powerful. It's interesting to me, and I actually I think a lot of uh, very good CBT therapists do this, but we don't yet have a way of articulating yes. the mental process that's taking place in therapists as they make these decisions. Yeah, because I know, like when you when you did the second edition, you guys added more. I guess I think you call positive psychology with mm. acceptance, gratitude, forgiveness, right? right? Very good. Yeah, mm-hmm. which I oh, t- I can tell people mm-hmm. what page to turn to. Trust yeah. me. <laughs> Yeah. And um, all I loved that addition to it because yeah. that's such a huge component, right? It, it is. So I, yeah. I was mentioning DBT and ACT yeah. and um, uh, different variants of CBT that have been shown to work. But you're right. There's been a, um, a lot of positive psychology interventions uh, that have empirical validation now. So the question became, how do we incorporate that into mind over mood? And we know that being able to focus on gratitude, um, as an example, has a very powerful impact on the way we feel. And I know for myself, what I try to do is when I wake up in the morning to identify three things that I'm most looking forward to in the course of the day. 
And it's interesting because usually my first thought when I wake up, the automatic thought is not gratitude. So the first, remember, the first thought is automatic. Yes. And I'll be thinking something else. But my second thought is a question, which <laughs> is, what three things am I most looking forward to today? Seeing, seeing Julie. Oh, Doing so the podcast nice. <laughs> for this morning was certainly on my list this morning. And seeing my grandson was yes. the second one that was on the list, and seeing my daughter and my wife. So I try to identify things that I'm look, most looking forward to, um, and then I bookmark, bookend my days. So I do that when my head hits the pillow at night. And at the end of the evening, I'll ask myself, what were the three best things that mm -hmm. happened to me through the course of the day? And so I try to, these are findings from positive psychology that I'm incorporating into my life. Okay. And with gratitude, what I've done is to keep an ongoing gratitude list, which is in Mind Over Mood now. Yes. But it's what, what things in my life am I most grateful for? And to remind myself of these things and to add to it on a regular basis. And I keep it on the cloud now, so it's available on my phone, oh. it's available on my laptop, at home, it's available on my desktop at the office, and I can look at it and add to it whenever I need to. And if I'm like most people, and I think I am, um, the gratitude list starts out with things that you're really grateful about, like being alive yes. and having your health and people that are most important in your life, but it begins to filter down into um, hearing birds in mm. you know chirping because spring is coming, or seeing the leaves beginning to change color, or the warmth of the sun on your skin. So it, become, it comes down to those kinds of experiences that happen on a daily basis. Yeah. And what we know from the positive psychology literature is that as we're able to focus our mental attention on these kinds of experiences, it has a positive effect on our mood and really has the ability to counterbalance depression or anxiety or anger, guilt, or shame, yes. other kinds of uh, negative moods that we may be having. So when you talk about like hearing the birds or the sun on your skin, I talk to my clients, but that's being present, mm -hmm. right? And, exactly. Yeah, and with the gratitude list, I tell a lot of people, especially if you have a little bit of a commute to work, right? Doing gratitude on your way home, yes, will change. Instead of like at the end of the day, we're like, oh, what didn't I get done, or what do I have to do tomorrow, right? Right. Or they say that's what you think about in the shower. What do yes. I have to get done, or what's my day? Yes. And doing a gratitude list right there can just right. shift everything for exactly. you. Exactly. Yeah. Yes, doing so a gratitude powerful. list, or if just feeling the warmth of the water. Yes. Uh, in your hair or on your skin, or the dripping of the water or the sound of the water. So you bring up another good point about the <laughs> being present and the mindfulness, because it's an everyday mindfulness kind of practice of focusing on right here and right now, whether it's your breathing or the sound of the birds or the blueness in the sky or the whiteness of the clouds. And as you're doing that, you're not focused on what you've got to do or yes. what you're fearful about, or you're not focused on your self-criticism. And so it becomes in some way like doing, going to the gym and doing a bicep curl every time you bring your brain and your attention back to the thing that you're grateful for or back to the present moment, you're strengthening your brain, mm -hmm. you're strengthening your mind, and you're strengthening your ability to free yourself from those distracting, more habitual, negative thoughts. 
That's wonderful. Yeah, and everybody can practice that right now. Yes. Do that today. Right at this very moment. Right at this very moment, (laughs) exactly. Um, I don't, and I was thinking, I don't, I haven't come up with anything regarding any controversial aspects with CBT, but, you know, are there any arguments against it out there that you hear about or? So it's it's interesting because when I think about the history of of CBT and when uh, Dr. Beck, I was in some, when Dr. Beck was first starting, when I'd be in large lecture halls with him, people were hostile, therapists. <laughs> therapists were hostile and there were all kinds of arguments and why it wasn't going to work and why it was um, uh, superficial or uh, it wasn't, it was a flash in the pan and wasn't going to last long. And that, those kinds of questions just gradually went by the wayside. Mm. And so I think that the current controversies, uh, to the degree that there are some, are are intra-family kind of <laughs> controversies, if you will, the family being the CBT family. Yeah. So people will have um, one method or another that they may argue about. But if you look at the, if you think of CBT as a large umbrella of different kinds of interventions that have been empirically validated and shown to work and being effective, um, with outside of that family, I'm not really aware of too many controversies. Yeah. And um, certainly much fewer than there were in the past. Yes. So these intra-family kind of um, debates or squabbles or whatever you want to call them, I think are really healthy in terms of moving the field forward. Yes. And well, let me ask you this question. When you were saying like the fidelity about keeping the therapist like on track. So yes. I, I tell everyone, like I practice what I preach. Mm-hmm. Like I use all yes. these tools, right? Mm-hmm. So I do too. I think that allows me in therapy to help guide my client because right. I have an understanding of how it's benefited me or what works better yes. for me. Or, you know, like I tell everybody, there's so many tools and not yes. everyone's going to work for you. Yes. But we need yes. to find out which ones will work for you. Right. And because we practice what we preach, we know the difficulties and the challenges in implementing these. I'll tell you a funny story about Dr. Beck. Um, he, uh, at that time, would often come to California to give lectures. And I was walking around a hotel with him not far from here um, the day before a lecture that he was giving and at that time there weren't really digital devices and it was after lunch we're walking around the grounds of the hotel and he pulls a, one of those golf stroke counters out of his pocket do you know golf yeah, stroke yeah, yeah, counters? Yes, yes, little yeah. mechanical device <laughs> and uh, and he clicks it and um, I you know I looked at him kind of quizzically and I said what I don't get it what, what are you doing <laughs> What's that? He said, oh, that's my negative automatic thought counter. That's my seventh one of the day or my 17th one of the day or whatever it was. And it struck me for a number of reasons. But one of the reasons that struck me is that here's the person who's the father of cognitive therapy, of cognitive behavior therapy, and still still having and Mm. being aware of the negative thoughts as they occur. And so it's not, it's always a practice and not something that we get to where it's ever all gone, but we all are at a different stage of evolution in this and ability with this. And we never get to the, there's never a point where we are pure in our thoughts or our responses or whatever, because we're human. Yes. That's what makes Dr. Beck was so great. I mean, he stayed humble all those years. Oh my, Yes. Him yes. being the father of all of it, right? right? He still knew he needed to grow and practice what what he taught people. Right, absolutely, and um, 
Yeah, absolutely. Very, very humble person. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. But going back from just a moment to the mindfulness kind of mm -hmm. uh, how mindfulness is integrated into CBT, any of your listeners should uh, Google um, a conversation between Dal uh, the Dalai Lama and Aaron Beck. I don't know if you've ever seen it. I have it, not seen that. Oh, it's fascinating. So they talk about the, it's about an hour long, maybe an hour and a half even, where just the two of them are sitting talking. Wow. And they talk about the similarities and differences between mindfulness and meditation and, uh, and CBT. It's oh, a fascinating conversation. Yes. Yeah. That is great. Yeah, it really is. That is great. So any, I, I'm, I'm humbled sitting here with you. So grateful. I know you don't give a lot of interviews and... I've always considered you a friend and just like grateful that we, you know, yes. I got to meet I you too. back when I did yeah. and I had the training and like mm -hmm. I said, Mind Over Mood, everybody knows that's my book. <laughs> and um, so is there anything, any last thoughts to share with the listeners about CBT or how you would recommend getting started? And I wanted you to share just about your office here in Newport Beach if anybody wants to reach out to you guys. He has a lot of therapists that work here. So you might not see Dennis, yeah. but there's a lot of good therapists here in his office as well. What we do, if, if the listeners are in California, they're certainly welcome to call uh, here. I think that you can research uh, CBT online, but if you're listening to Julie's podcast, you probably already are pretty well-versed uh, in CBT. I think if you're out of California there are, and you're interested in getting involved in therapy, uh, there's a organization that I... Um, I'm involved with it. It's called the Academy of Cognitive and Behavior Therapy, and it's an organization whose mission is to certify uh, people that are um, have the ability to maintain fidelity to the CBT model. And so we use a lot of the fidelity instruments that Dr. Beck was using okay. when he was doing his research studies. And there's people all over the world that um, are going to be listed on that organization's website. Um, you can go to the uh, Beck Institute's website. Mm -hmm. uh, they have some certified uh, cognitive therapists as well. And the third organization would be the um, Association for the Advancement of Behavior and Cognitive Therapy. So ABCT.org, uh, <laughs> I think it is. And they've got a real extensive worldwide list of people uh, that uh, um, do uh, cognitive and behavioral therapy. I think there's a lot of uh, very good books uh, in addition to Mind Over Mood. Um, one of them that I like for de depression in particular is Feeling Good. Uh, David Burns has some other books on other uh, mood kinds of difficulties as well. Uh, so I think there's a lot of good resources out there now that uh, people can find relatively easily. Okay. And what can you share that when we were talking yeah, before the podcast, what was the other, your second favorite book you said you were telling me about mm. that would be right. good to share? <laughs> sure. So there was, a, Julie and I were talking prior to the podcast about a, well, my second favorite book in the world, <laughs> my favorite one being Man's Search for Meaning uh, by Viktor Frankl. But the second one is called Learn to Optimism. And Learned Optimism is a book that's written by Martin Seligman, who um, is the father of positive psychology, but he wrote this book prior to um, his uh, work in positive psychology, and it was also a colleague of Aaron Beck at okay. the University of Pennsylvania. But this book, Learned Optimism, um, is stems from uh, Dr. Seligman's work understanding how people respond to failure 
and setback and defeat. And um, what he found is that people who are prone to depression tend to respond to defeat in a very negative kind of way. They tend to think of themselves as failures. Mm -hmm. They tend to think of themselves as always having been a failure. And they tend to think of that sense of failure as cutting across all kinds of situations. So if, um, if I remember correctly, the failure is personalized, it's pervasive, and it's permanent. Wow. I always remember it from three Ps. <laughs> personalized, permanent, and pervasive. So, for example, if someone, a teenager fails a, the ninth grader fails a history test, and they tend to be depressed, they'll think, I'm stupid, mm -hmm. and I'm not only stupid in history, but I'm stupid in all mm -hmm. subjects, and stupidity is not one of those subjects, uh, not one of those characteristics that changes with time. This is with me forever. So it's personal, it's permanent, and it's pervasive across wow. all subjects. As opposed to the person who fails the test, who is not uh, depressed, they may say, it's not... I didn't fail it because I'm stupid. The teacher didn't test me on what they said they were going to test me on. It's her fault, not mine. <laughs> and besides, I've got time to bring up the grade, and I'm doing well on all the other tests, so don't worry about it. Not necessarily that that's a better way of understanding it, but it's different than what you might be, um, what might serve as the cognitive basis of depression. Dr. Seligman called it the how people explain events in their lives or their mm. attribution theory or explanatory style. Now, what he, it led to this book, Learned Optimism, because he, what he realizes is some people respond to failure and defeat in a less than negative kind of way. So, Learned Optimism looks at um, how mental attitude affects us academically, uh, sports, business, and even in um, medical care. Mm. Um, do you want me to share the medical one? Please, okay. yes. <laughs> so, so the one chapter, if I remember it correctly, on it was how people responded to a diagnosis of cancer, and what Dr. Seligman found is that if you hold constant uh, stage of cancer, age of the person, type of cancer, and all the variables that you could possibly hold constant that some people saw cancer as a death sentence, and some people saw the diagnosis of cancer as another life challenge that needed to be overcome and addressed, and to put it simply. And the people who saw the cancer diagnosis as a life challenge that needed to be addressed tended to live longer and have a higher quality of life, live significantly longer and have a higher quality of life. It shows the power of the mentality, the power of the attitude. This chapter on a diagnosis of cancer, but you'll see in the rest of the book, in all different areas of life, um, how big of a, a impact it has. And this whole notion of explanatory style or attribution theory is another way of understanding cognitions and how we think through life challenges. Yes. Yeah, that's powerful, powerful. And I was, you know, you guys know that I had cancer a year and a half ago and laid in my hospital bed, you know, I had that moment of like, I just need to use my tools because your brain can just go to the worst place. And um, based on what you're sharing with the book, 
I can see that that's where my head was, that it was another life challenge that mm-hmm. I had to work through and yes. give myself that space to sometimes just cry and be sad, but then get back yes. and using my tools to be like, okay, what am I going to do going forward? Right? right. And even today, what do I need to do to stay healthy? Right. You know, right. and be well. So that book, all you guys, as always, will be on um, with the podcast today, too, so you can order that one as well, as with Mind Over Mood. is always, always, always there for you guys to find, but we will post that book as well so you can find that. So I'm, like I said, eternally grateful. Then it's the 100th episode. If I had some champagne here, I'd be popping the cork. <laughs> <laughs> it's very exciting. It's just a beautiful way to celebrate this. And um, I'm grateful to all you guys that listen. And please continue to share. Um, the more people that learn CBT, I think the world will be a better place. And you know how to find me through my website at mycognitivetherapy.com. Um, Facebook, I'm under Dr. Julie Osborne. Instagram is under my CBT podcast. So keep sharing your feedback and questions. And I appreciate you being here. And remember to make decisions based on what's best for you, not how you feel.